0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of DJ Food, who's also known as Kevin Folk's. Um, Also, the reason really for this was that um, he, as Kevin has uh, written a book titled Wheels of Light Designs for British Light Shows 1970 to 1990 this has just come out on Four Corners Publishing so do check it out Um, Wheels of Light is the publication it's about the swirling coloured oil and kaleidoscopic patterns that were projected um, across bands and venues for many decades. So, with that excitement and, uh, yes, interest, uh, we got down to that exciting subject that was the, obviously, the early formative years, DJ Food or okay. Kev. Take it away.
1: Yes, I'm slightly after you. I'm born in 1970, so I'm 52. My biggest, my, my first big band that I was really a fan of was Adam and the Ants. Right. In the very early 80s, 81. But when, post-punk version, um, post-punk when he went you know Red Indian, Prince Charming that yes. and all that and I worked my way back through into the punk years um yeah. but I do and, and around the same time was this you know the new wave of Electronica, Gary Newman, Human League, Duran Duran that kind of thing so I was very much into synth pop.
0: Right sort of tail end of the new romantic period as well wasn't it really? And, and also
1: Craftwork, who obviously scored their freak number one hit with the model at that time and I you know, uh, worked my way back through their back catalogue because that got reissued. So I was into Computer World and Transitive Express and Man Machine, something in the 80s as a a, a young teenager.
0: Did you then embrace the world of Laurie Anderson and O Superman? Did that sort of come on your radar? A little bit.
1: Well, I mean, it came on my radar, yes, because it was, again, another sort of weird freak hit. Uh, I didn't understand it at the time. I think I was a bit too young. I thought, this is very odd. Um, But I've, you know, since yeah my ways a little.
0: It was it was a bit. I, was, I remember being on the school bus, hearing this song, thinking, "This isn't um, I don't know I don't, one of those pop songs that we got in the sort of late 70s, You know, yeah. the, the the Saturday Night Fever, come some novelty track by Tele Tele Savalas or something like that. This yeah. is, it is very arty, even craftwork. But Laurie Anderson pushed the boat out. So then, when you got to sort of like 15, 16, this was kind of the the ultimate sort of moment of. Did yes. you get into the indie pop world at all at this stage, sort of 80s? Little,
1: well, I kind of jumped from Frankie O's to Hollywood, ZTT, Art of Noise, which was around 84, 85, straight into hip hop at that point. So, whilst I was aware of what's happening in the pop charts, I wasn't really so aware of the indie side of things until a little bit later when I discovered things like Sun Bizarre, Blast First, you know, Big Black, The The you know scraping features off the wheel things like that you know the more sort of extreme left field end of of things um so i wasn't you know i I kind of caught up with 4ad and things like that a little bit later in the 90s actually
0: yeah absolutely because i remember um i was a huge john peel fan i was very committed to john peel and though he played a lot of indie pop he did also play you know all the world of you know reggae and african music and the bundy boys and you know sly and robbie but then he also played a lot of early hip-hop and i remember sort of being just copying him i was, I was that sort of personality thinking right i'm going to get into hip-hop as well because it was all new and interesting and, and there was these street sounds compilations Morgan Khan, right. yeah. and i even went down to to london in i do not know wembley arena from what was it, 86 for this kind of massive event that oh, they put... fresh. yes I yes to that that, yeah. that went UK i was there it. and that was that period where they just blue whistles yeah and your eardrum I mean no one will believe me now but that whistling was just
1: hideously
0: yes, and the bass
1: no. you know? uh, unfortunately I was one of those people
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> with it, it was whist- just what everyone did and yeah you're right people don't remember that time no. you, know, you go to gigs with and, and blow whistles repeatedly throughout the gig and yeah, there's the whistle posse usually down the front you
0: know whistle and they would lie they were not just a little bit like you know the pe teacher at school it was just yeah.
1: massive so what
0: was your because i remember i've been really obsessed with people like there was roxay Shante, there was sweet tea there was the real roxanne there was yeah. you know early ll cool j with you know rock the bells and on the radio and public enemy yo bum rush the show so what yeah. was your kind of hip-hop kind of heroes at that stage
1: it was very much the similar thing. It was Def Jam and Beastie Boys and De- Public Enemy, yeah, LL Cool J, Run DMC. Um, but I used to listen to a guy called Mike Allen, who was on Capital Radio at the time. Um, I couldn't. I wasn't living in London then, and I couldn't get Kiss FM and the Pirates. So I can hear Tim Westwood and people like that. So he would have a Friday and Saturday night show, uh, and he would just play all the latest hip hop imports from Groove Records in Soho. Right. And I used to tape that and. It was a huge musical education because, like you, I got the Street Sounds compilations because they were a f- affordable way for a teenager to buy U.S. imports, which yes. were five pounds a pop back then for a twelve inch. You could buy eight of those on one compilation by yes, the Street Sounds thing. So that was that was the way in for me, you know, in terms of releases. Well, actually, and also
0: many. I made the mistake of once or twice buying the album by an artist and realizing John Peel had just played the one good track.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is the that is. The,
0: yeah. I'm feeling really disappointed. and yeah. feeling the. I mean, I,
1: I was never into Peel um, in the '80s or or even even in the '90s. Honestly, I you know I listened to his show a few times. Bizarrely, I did actually do a session for him in 2000, uh, and he was very complimentary of the Ninja Tune label that I'm on and and a lot of the artists and consistently played a lot of stuff, which yes. was great. But he never kind of figured into my into my
0: upbringing in some in some way yeah it's kind of weird because then by the late 80s there was a sort of a transition to gangster rap and also Raga because yes. I loved the the reggae world and that was where I kind of felt a bit kind of uncomfortable. it's like you yeah. know I'm, I'm not a gangster rapper me too, and, and, and Ragga, you know I loved Asward, Burning Spear, Misty mm-hmm. and Roots all those kind of really great nights watching those bands but I just couldn't get. I did go and see Shabu Ranks, and I did go and see a few of those artists, but it was just a little bit like, you know, I was. I'm probably quite woke, you know. I find it a bit, <laughs> so I find it a little bit offensive at times, and like yeah, yeah. there so, is yeah.
1: there. There was always that element. Um, I think maybe we're more slightly tuned into that stuff these days than maybe we were when we were younger.
0: Yeah, it this was is definitely, true.
1: it was part that whole gangster thing. You knew that it was bad back then, but you also kind of knew that they didn't really mean it. They were kind of playing a role, which is what hip hop was in the 80s. It was very much playing a role. I'm bad. I'm I'm a gangster. I've got gold, all this sort of stuff. It wasn't until everything got real in the 90s, in inverted commas, that I think maybe... Some people take, start taking it a bit too seriously. Yeah,
0: that was a bit of a shame, know? really. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you know, we were, well, I was very angsty about the 80s and there was Red Wedge, there was, you know, Queen playing Sun City, you know, and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So so I couldn't put that to one side and sort of yes. embrace that world of, you know, some of the language and some of the sentiments. Definitely,
1: definitely. I mean, it's it's changing, obviously, and it has changed for the better, I think. But It was uh, always a bit, yeah. Yeah, you listen the, back to some of that stuff now and you think, mm-hmm what must my parents have
0: thought <laughs> yes this is this is true but um yeah there were there were one or two artists that even though they were tricky they did have one or two amazing songs which um yes. yeah it was it was kind of a funny one really but then sort of as the 80s progressed there was that kind of yeah there was the kind of the, the, what I sort of discovered you know every five years is another chapter of music I suppose the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds and then kind of I suppose you know the Smiths broke up I was big on the Smiths and then you know there was this kind of okay that's all going and then Ecstasy came along and then you had that Chicago house sound and um, then you had the Orb and then you had all those bands who were sort of making that Manchester sound of like the Soup Dragons and Happy Mondays and you know Stone Roses so then how how did you sort of navigate that because you would have been at that perfect age where you know this was your moment wasn't it yes
1: Yes. Well, I was in art college, uh, sixth form in art college at the end of the 80s. I, um, you know, I was very aware of all of that stuff. I was still very much into hip hop. It was just turning to gangster for me at the end of the 90s, uh, end of the 80s. Sorry, and then, you know, Baggy came in, let's say at the end, let's say 89, 90 was the switch over into sort of. Baggy. Yes. And and that was very much it. it. It was a good point because you had the indie scene colliding with the dancing for a few years. Obviously, the Primal screen, Stone Roses and that sort of thing. Um, Happy Mondays. And that was my... They were my clubbing years. And I moved to London in 1990 to study graphic design. So I was at the perfect place. It was... On one side, it was, you know, Falls Gold. And on the other side, it was Grooves in the Heart. And yes. everyone... Mesh, it all meshed together. And it was brilliant because I could understand there was breakbeats and there were samples and there was... There were songs as well, and, you know, I sort of caught up with the indie scene a little bit in those years and started going clubbing to proper clubs. You know, before that, I was out in the sticks in Surrey and, you know, making do with friends' parties and things that I was DJing at and uh, and the the few little clubs and raves that were about.
0: Yeah. So you identified it as very much a DJ from those early years?
1: I started DJing in eighty five in my bedroom, learning to DJ through hip hop. And then by the time I got to London, I'd actually played a couple of local gigs and set up parties with friends. And when I got to London, the opportunity to do that was bigger and better. And by the end of my course in 93, I studied at Camberwell College of Graphic Graf- Design. Um, and I was putting on parties with friends and flatmates in London, both in my house and in squats. Uh, just like just after I left um, in Brixton and places like that, and we were doing ambient parties. We were very much into that Orb, Future Sound London, uh, yes. kind of, uh, thing at that point, point. and we made we made parties that were basically chill out rooms. They weren't. They, we would go to a lot of clubs, and we would you know rave in the main room, and then we'd go and chill out in the in the back room, which was then really half of it was dub and reggae, and half of it was ambient. You know, it was very much let's just sit down chill out yeah um, and we 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 decided to do clubs that was that all day there wasn't any main room and there wasn't the main room was the chart room so we did a, a series of parties called telepathic fish in various different places around london in the early 90s and that's mm. how i met cold cut um who had formed the ninja tune label and i'd already been a fan of through hip-hop and um got to work for the ninja tune label and became a part of the dj food thing
0: yes my god and that was that period which i mean when we look back on it now the john major years up to team tony and new labor that was kind of a kind of a bit of a there was an expansive time wasn't it on it was on fantastic. Some...
1: musically it was incredible i mean there was a new genre every year pretty much not, <laughs> not and that i'm just talking about in the dance world there but you know in the in the in the other world you had britpop and you had grunge and all that stuff and and you'd already had gaze or whatever you want to, you know, yes. and, and, but in dance music, you had ambient techno and intelligent techno and jungle and trip hop and, laser happy, house. and happy, happy, house. happy house, happy hardcore. Yeah. It was all going off and splintering into a million different genres. And it was fantastic. It almost, I, I remember getting to the end of the nineties and thinking there's nothing new where, where's the new stuff coming in? And that was really, I think, where we started to look backwards.
0: Yes. I Artists. mean, there was also, I suppose, was Castle Morton, was that 91, 92?
1: I think it was later than that. I think it was 93.
0: Because it was, uh, it might, yeah, that might have been actually. But it was, the it was right. just
1: pre criminal justice bill, wasn't it? Which I think was 94.
0: Yeah. Uh, I could be wrong,
1: could be 92.
0: Because interesting enough, that whole travelers movement was a little bit tricky in the 80s and late 70s because the convoy or the peace convoy they called it were quite destructive to people trying to put on events but then thatcher came along with the battle of the Beanfield and sort Mm. of slightly wiped them out which on one level is terrible but it did mean that then people in the 90s who started putting on things didn't have this kind of peace convoy turning up kind of trashing the site And um, I know that's a bit of a sweeping statement, but there was a lot of people I know who just got fed up trying to put on festivals and fairs in the 80s because it was like, well, you know, 20 buses will turn up and they'll... Wreck the site, and then they'll um, and then they'll sort of basically not leave, and then they'll still. It's difficult.
1: It's a difficult situation that there are a lot of different sides and angles to look at that from. I think, and it's sort of a longer discussion.
0: It is a longer. (laughs) You you can't
1: really make a sweeping sweeping statement about that because there's a lot to do with freedom of speech and land rights and all sorts of different things caught up in that. And yeah, there would be a lot of there's an expectation with some of that movement in that everything has to be free and there's a practicality to that which if you don't live like that doesn't always work
0: yeah and also yeah I just remember in East Anglia just as on that, that period, there was a lot of people putting on these fairs and festivals like Barsham Albion fairs they were quite folky but mm. then by the 80s because I've sort of interviewed quite a lot of them they just went actually we just can't do this we can't we can't put an event on and then get this kind of scene on you know on near this village because these old people are going to freak out we can't we can't do that and we can't take that responsibility anymore so it's a tricky one but then in the 90s because I was a bit curious that you know that all these things were started to happen and and there wasn't this other element that kind of came along which was quite um could be quite nihilistic and quite destructive but um yes that's a whole other trope so by the night yeah I know it's it's a fascinating subject though um (laughs) But then sort of by by new labor, you you sort of this was this was like almost coming to the end of your musical, your first musical chapter then.
1: Um uh, maybe by that point I'd sort of fully transitioned into a professional DJ, you know, traveling the world with Ninja Tune and Cold Cut and DJ Food. And I was also designing for the label uh, the the sleeves and covers and things like that. So I was basically, I was learning how to make music as opposed to DJ was also expanding my musical knowledge because i was traveling and i was going to places like japan and the states and canada and australia and and soaking in so much new music because it was available there in copious amounts for not very much money you know it was the vinyl the cd boom was there the vinyl vinyl was dying vinyl was really slowly becoming cheaper and cheaper and the pound to dollar ratio especially in canada Canada and the states was just in our favor and You know, I think I pretty much bought my jazz and funk collection in the States in the 90s and soaked all that in. So I was constantly being exposed through travel, international travel, to new things outside of the UK. And as a result, sort of just drinking that all in and regurgitating that into the music I was making.
0: Yes. Amazing. That's just fantastic. Yeah. And there was, you know, I mean, DJ Shadow came along, didn't he? Yeah. It was Absolutely. all those kind of kind of albums that sort of were kind of massive moments. But then, you know, one of the things I've always been fascinated with is the the sixties counterculture and especially nineteen sixty seven, the summer of love. You know, yeah. there was the fourteen yeah. hour Technicolor dream in Ali Pali. In July, but then in in January there had been the the gathering of the tribes in San Francisco, and then you know I became fascinated with all these kind of other parts of it, from the haircut to the clothes to the light shows that we all loved, yeah. didn't we? And which brings us to your amazing book, Wheels of Light, which is. um so when did yeah? So talking about these kind of incredible Technicolor technique, yeah, the psychedelic light shows. When did you become interested in this kind of new, uh, well, not new art form, but that particular art form?
1: Well, this started in college when I was in sixth form, and then later in art college, um, I found a book called Psychedelic Art in the library, which kind of opened my mind. And I was, you know, I was learning about art history, I was learning about surrealists and things like that, and I've always been into. Uh, the sort of fancy element of art. I've always read comics since I was a kid, and it re- visually appealed to me. So I started researching more and more about this, and obviously got to the the whole poster, you know, science fiction as uh, West Coast poster kind of craze from the what about States. Roger Dean? Roger Roger Dean, I was kind of into, but there was something about the West Coast thing It was a little more I don't know what it was that sort of
0: so are we talking those kind of grateful dead jimi hendrix yes. kind of all those... those
1: posters with the the crazy type of graph typography that you can't read you have to decipher yeah and and it, and it comes down to another thing when i was into hip-hop i was also i before i was into hip-hop i was into graffiti i used to write graffiti which was again indecipherable typography that was coded for its audience to read and it wasn't really for anyone else it's a little and um, subculture and that was what I saw in the posters. It was this indecipherable iconography, which yeah. had elements of comics in it as well. And there was actually a connection to graffiti because a lot of the graffiti writers would take things like the flying eyeball off the Jimi Hendrix poster and put it on a train or on a wall or something like that. So I was already familiar with some of that sort of stuff. And I thought, oh, that's where that's from. Sampling head, you know, deconstructing yes. things. And then that I got more and more into that whole scene and the artist's was very much attracted by the visual side first and then the music side later um and then typically did a bunch of drugs in the 90s which expanded my mind and saw exactly what they were doing you know in my own but in my own um uh time if you see what yes I mean. I kind of i could i could relate to what they were relating to at that time
0: so you months. were much more interested in the american than the kind of the british psychedelic artist was it Hap-Dash?
1: hap dash the color coat with the you know the prime artists over here and also martin sharp who'd come over from australia who was doing oz magazine was another one who did cream covers and things like that um, yes but yes i was i couldn't tell the difference initially i was i was still soaking it all in and i think i was probably more attracted to the west coast stuff initially but i just I just sort of became what I what I describe even to this day as a sort of student of psychedelia and trying to learn about that time and who was involved and where and what and all the clubs and all the rest of it. And you know, light, light shows were a part of that, but they were um they were kind of glossed over and they were really, you know, sort of not written about as much. Obviously the music and the art got kind of center stage. Yeah. Um and that that was fine. And I kind of did all that. But then I was also into putting on my own nights, as I told you. And then later on, I've met tons of visual people during my DJ years, and I was doing graphics, graphic design for myself. I didn't really push into the sort of live visuals thing till about 2008. Right. Videos, video DJ sets with, you know, adding video to my DJ sets that I was mixing and an old friend of mine, Pete Williams, reconnected with me a few years after and we decided he was really into analog stuff and he'd he been part of a visual crew and we decided somehow i don't remember the genesis of it to sort of do this visual nicole further which, which was all old slides and carousels video projection liquid light and sort of things and build this sort of what i now realized was a sort of more professional version of the ambient telepathic fish parties i've been doing in the early 90s but right back then Wasn't... i was a student i didn't have any money didn't really know what was doing you know fast forward to let's say 20 years later i've now got a wealth experience all sorts of contacts and a little bit more money let's say you know to put into this stuff to invest into this stuff and we put these nights on and that really reignited the love of finding out about light shows
0: yes was that was that homage to ken kesey's bus further
1: further is definitely yes obviously um yeah that references ken kesey's bus um whilst being very very open ended and you know doesn't not necessarily descriptive yes those those who know about that stuff get the reference instantly but those who don't doesn't you know
0: you can read into it that's the main thing exactly So, yes. Yeah, so on the on the book front. So then, you know, because we're having an idea is one thing, then waking up the next day and thinking, hmm. So how did you then sort of progress with this? Because obviously, there's a huge amount of research and work and also getting all the images as well, which is quite extraordinary.
1: Well, this this came to me through a friend of mine, Paul Noble, who uh, runs Spiritland, the venue. And I'd done we'd done a further at Spiritland. And Paul was very much into light shows himself. He was up at um, the Optokinetics HQ, which is the premier British light show manufacturer from the 70s, still going after 52 years. Yes. He called me one day and said, I've just been to Optokinetics. They've got drawers full of original art. You've got to come and see this. So a few weeks later, we drove up. Sure enough, there's a huge plan chest in the corner on on the upper floor. And he starts pulling out the drawers. And inside are these huge hand-painted images, about this big, half a metre wide, that were the original art for all the picture wheels and things like that, which are then condensed down to small six-inch wheels, which would revolve in projectors and project out into the clubs. Yeah. And there was just tonnes of this stuff, drawers of it, with film and slides and all sorts of things and effects, and it was all dating back to the 70s. And I just thought, this is just amazing. It has to be in a book, you know? it's just it's too good to be sitting in the drawer
0: so with the just to just describe because because there is the the projectors which have got the lights there's the ones which are the oil ones which do the sort yeah. of psychedelic and movement yeah. and a lot of these ones are actually drawings aren't they the so ones, when... some of
1: the ones yeah this is this is called they're called um effects wheels or, or picture wheels let's say And they're a sort of painting or drawing of a, let's say, a scene that's wrapped around the disc so that the ground is in the centre of the disc and the sky is at the edge of the disc. And in between that, you'll have anything from a sort of science fiction fantasy scene in space or dinosaurs or horror monsters or all sorts of things. And this is very much a 70s and early 80s kind of phenomenon that has since really sort of passed into sort of um, into sort of history there are the thing the liquids have really survived the liquid wheels which are full of actual liquids which then revolve and heat up and bubble away um but the picture wheels are less known because they really haven't kind of transferred into the 21st century quite in the same way you know they've been superseded by video back, yes back in the 70s you didn't have access to video in the way that we do these days yes so they they these wheels would revolve in a projector you you sort of slide them onto this motor, which slots into the front of the projector. And the, the wheel revolves around and a section of it is pro- projected out. And because it's revolving, it's kind of like an ongoing panorama that just goes on and on and on and never, never ends because it just goes back to the beginning.
0: Because it, it's in, it's interesting because that's a part of, of the light show that we, we don't really hasn't hasn't been particularly documented because you know the sort of 60s and the Andy Warhol world and the west yes. coast is so well known and also yes. all those clips of early Pink Floyd and and people like that is always yes. kind of shown quite a lot so with that did you go back and also kind of research that period of why and who started that that exactly. particular
1: that was the of... first thing that the publisher Four Corners said they said this is all great but we don't know what any of this is it looks great we want to do a book about it but it needs context so, yes yes knowing a bit of the history i went back researched even more and along the way found even more art because i kept finding people who had a cachet of it because they were manufacturers in the 70s um and that expanded the book even more which was great um and yeah it's just um you know it's just it became 200 pages (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, even even at the 11th hour I was I found one guy Larry Wooden from Orion who who had since ceased trading in the, in the early 80s and he'd been completely unfindable on the internet or through any telephone numbers I would traced and yes. suddenly he appeared on a Facebook group and I phoned him up had a very long conversation with him and then jumped on the train to Colchester where he was living and he had a huge storage lockup of boxes and wheels and original art and he came to the book launch and was showing some of his original art from the wheels to people at the at the, at the gallery.
0: God that like... must have been such a nice project to do because obviously you know archiving is it's something that comes to us all doesn't it eventually. Yes. Um, so to be able to sort of get all this kind of nicely put together and have some sort of uh, documentation and almost exhibition must feel really enjoyable Because if because if you hadn't done it this would have all just kind of probably ended up in landfill wouldn't it? this is
1: the thing this is the thing that you know we're we're sadly we're we're losing some of the pioneers you know year on year when you only have to turn on social media and see if someone else has died from you know back in the 60s and 70s um and if it doesn't get documented now it, it's not it's only ever going to be second hand then and to get this information from the horse's mouth is is just utterly invaluable
0: Yes so why understood. did why did there was why was there the change between the oil lights which were obviously quite toxic and probably a health and safety disaster kind of, why did that change to the, the to the actual drawings themselves because there seems to be like oh that's a good idea what, yeah. what was the kind well, of shift?
1: Well they all ran alongside um, each other the um, the light shows are really a combination of many many different practices. A good light show isn't just one thing. It's a mixture of oils and it's a mixture of pictures and it's a mixture of slides, sometimes cine film, sometimes it was back then, 16 millimeter. Um, and, and people would do actual this thing, this thing called a wet show in the States, which is where you get two clock faces, two glass clock faces, and you you put the oil and paint and ink and all sorts of liquids in between and sandwich between the two clock faces, and that's then projected for an overhead projector, the kind that you would have. Had at school that the schoolmaster would have written on and projected onto the wall yes. um, into the club. You know, that was the original way of doing oils. The way they were captured in a wheel was a, more of a sort of way to sell this thing to the public by the by the um the projection companies. Um, because obviously doing that with oil and paint and ink in a club is very, very messy. So <laughs> and requires a level of skill that most of us wouldn't have.
0: Yes and so what was the period then for the for the you know the 70s the sort of the pictures how long did those companies and that that sort of art form last for?
1: Well the pictures really only appeared in the sort of around 74 I think the first picture wheel was 7475 and they lasted through till the 80s. I mean people still do make them now but they're less made. Made them, and, and and they're not the only thing featured in the book there are some liquid wheels and there's another thing called an effects cassette which is a kind of um two more two two apart patterns which revolve against each other and create a moray effect and they're they're really popular still um and they sort of endured throughout the 70s they kind of they they went into disco quite happily you know because they were quite sparkly and twinkly you know and, and disco yes. it was all lasers and And glitter balls and stuff and no one wanted liquids anymore and things like that
0: did hawkwind embrace the world of the the sort of uh, psychedelic lights i mean they had light shows and strobes because obviously lemmy loved
1: to try and freak out hawkwind are literally the the through line from the 70s to now you know they're still performing and they're still using light shows and half the people i speak to these days about light shows have done lights for Hawkwind they have never sort of stopped and honestly it's changed and technology's added and come along but they've never really as far as I can determine stopped doing the light show with one of their with with their performances so Hawkwind are really a kind of you know backbone of the UK lighting industry I think
0: fantastic good old Dave Brock still doing it to this yeah. day I guess actually Nick Turner sadly I know, that was oh, very I sad, agree. wasn't it? Poor old Nick. But Because um, it was kind of interesting talking of those kind of musical fashion moments of every few years. But lights were the same, weren't they? Because I remember suddenly when someone had a laser beam at a concert, which was really underwhelming at the yeah. time in the 80s. I mean, I guess that came along and that would have wiped out yeah. an awful lot of other things. So
1: technology, technology can change things overnight, really, you know, within the space of six months. And also musical styles as well. You know musical fashions and things. You know punk came along, and you know hippies were out and all that sort of thing for, for a certain sector of the.
0: Yes, artist. well, at least they pretended they hated the hippies, but yes, um, yes. they um, still they still owned lots of records uh, uh, by them. But uh, yes, that's exactly. always the thing. And what and 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 yourself? Are you still? Are you still? Obviously, you did this album last year, didn't you? The soundtrack to this book. So yeah. you're still making music.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when COVID happened, I made tons of music because I didn't have any DJ gigs. So I actually had the time to, you know, sit there and beaver away. This is my my, my problem half the time is I'm I'm doing things like this book and I'm designing record sleeves for all sorts of different people and um, DJing as well. And it's like, when do I get some time to make some actual music? You
0: know? Yes, and then COVID happened. And
1: COVID, yeah. COVID all was had... a really good actual stock. You know, I know it wasn't good for everybody, but just the ability to just stop everything just for a bit and have a a reflection on what you were doing. I've never had that before. I don't go on many holidays and you know, kind of stop what I'm doing because my work is kind of my hobby, yes,
0: like, you know, if,
1: I, <laughs> if I wasn't doing this as a job, I'd be doing it after hours, sort of
0: thing. yeah, and just oh yeah, just also back to the book, sorry to jump back again i mean we hear a lot about the uk and america did the the like did these kind of psychedelic light shows and wheels did they did they go across europe and sort oh yeah
1: of... yeah there's 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 europe-wide um psychedelic light shows i concentrated on the uk because with my oh. book it was too big it was too big the, the next obvious thing is to go to the states but even that is just a whole mountain another mountain and and um yeah and then you start adding Europe into that as well and it's it's too big for me to do in this in that particular book you know I'd have yes. like to do it in a in a larger volume later but um it's a hell of a lot of work it's a yeah lot of
0: you've got to have a you've got to have a sort of parameters don't you, you have to have boundaries on these sides, I think the
1: sometimes to do a good job and I, I I don't like generalizing too much I like to really drill down into a subject and get you know to the to the meat of it so that It can be a sort of definitive tone of what it's talking about it's not too wide you know it's like i'm sure there's plenty of people in the states and in europe that could could do their version of that book for their country or their area or something like that and 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 it really would be like that i mean in the 70s in london in in the uk there were hundreds of light shows you know um still finding them all the time you look in the back of something like um international times magazine and stuff from the 70s and yes and, and there's all sorts of listings for all sorts of people you've never heard of you know that were doing their own live shows that were all inspired by those initial things like the, you know uh, the people that were doing stuff for the soft machine like mark boyle and,
0: yes uh, uh, and but i and suppose joe people. it was joe boyd and his uh kind of scene on is it ufo yes. or those kind of nights that they yes. started to develop in 67 68 which was well,
1: that the ufo was where the Supposedly, where the light show got connected with music in the UK, and that Mark Boyle and, and Joan Hills, who were booked to do one of their light show performances solo, were were doing that. And then Joe Boyd, uh, no, I think it was actually Hoppy, John Hopkins. Um, is it John Hopkins is
0: John Hoppy. Hoppy Hopkins. Hopkins,
1: yes. He, he loved it so much. The soft machine were coming on after them, and he paid Mark and Joan at a tenor. To stay on and do the lights for the rest of the thing, and suddenly the Soft Machine had a light show, and they said, "Can you come and tour with us?" And they did, uh, and ended up talking, touring with Hendrix as well. And, God, uh,
0: that's amazing. You know, so that's a
1: kind of sort of a, a, a fortuitous situation, creating a fusion which wasn't previously there, because Mark Boyle and Joan Hills worked in the arts, in the art, you know, area. Yeah. rather than the music but they needed as everyone they everyone wanted a bit of, make a bit of money so come and do the lights for this.
0: Well there, yeah. so I suppose it was that two years of the psychedelic rock moment really wasn't it before yeah. 1970 and, and that chapter all coming to a sad close and then yeah. a different time. Well, different with scene. any with any
1: countercultural movement it's really short it's it's 18 months to a, two years for a sort of you know that initial flash before it all gets commercialized and co-opted and probably even even shorter these days you know nothing gets time to gestate and uh, and evolve before the internet's pounced on it and named it and labeled it and you know set the parameters and everyone else has steamed in to make their money off
0: it yes I think that there is a very short honeymoon period and then it's um commercialized very quickly isn't it really and um Mm -hmm. and then you get a dreadful single that's kind of a pastiche (laughs) (laughs) then you know it's over but yeah yeah 18 months it probably is true isn't it really you get that kind of moment that the stars have lined up and it's just The, the, the purest
1: the pure moment you know where and it's usually several disparate elements colliding in a sort of fortuitous constellation almost to make that start something special
0: yes absolutely and just lastly thing because it's always interesting when you do one of these research projects was there anything in particular that you discovered at the end of it that you which was kind of just mind-blowing or just really fascinating
1: um just the interconnectedness of it really I mean there were there were all sorts of people that and Neil Rice who was the one of the co-founders of Optokinetics, is uh absolute fountain of knowledge and i liaise with him very very heavily on this book you know he's almost a second author and the level with which his knowledge goes both back to the 60s and forward into the 90s and um, because he was you know helping people through optokinetics and their company from all walks of life you know he, yeah. would be, he would be helping people set up raves in warehouses and and you know going up to manchester to gmex to light the happy mondays and 808 state and people like that and just that sort of um the sort of connectedness of all of it really coming back down into this lighting company which has lit so many disparate scenes throughout the decades and and still does and that's what's really interesting there's almost a, an alternative history of music to be written that's threaded together by light shows you know throughout the years there's quite yeah a lot
0: no that's of God, i love that sort of stuff <laughs> it, it is fascinating isn't it when you sort of get these little nerdy things it keeps yeah. us amused doesn't it oh i'm a total
1: music nerd you know i, I like the detail you know
0: i love pull in these little sort of threads and then you sort yeah. of find another and it's just like hours of fun but look yeah. thank you ever so much and i do think this is an amazing piece of work i just thank absolutely you. loved it well i think
1: it's the only book of its kind so far so i'm quite pleased to be first in that queue
0: yes yeah no it's brilliant it's beautiful i love the publisher i have to say they're just yes, amazing four are great. they did one on green and common and um they did yeah.
1: that was fantastic as well yeah
0: i had no idea about the quilts it's absolutely...
1: no it's amazing and i saw my hometown i mean well uh rygate red hill is where i come from and there was a quilt in there from a rygate and red hill chapter of the green and common protesters and you know, who knew
0: Special times. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And, uh, and if you want, I can give you all send you the link or um, your publisher as well. So um, that will be great. But that's great. Well, thank you ever so much and have a great day. Yeah, and winter. Too, David. Great happy, to chat. Happy solstice time. Okay, Thanks. see you. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, just in case you weren't sure. And a massive thank you to Kevin folks for giving me the, the time for that. The book, again, is titled Wheels of Light – Dash designs uh, for British light shows, nineteen seventy to nineteen ninety. It's on. It's at hardback, and it's a real bargain actually. But it is a fantastic publication, beautifully put together. Four Corners Publishing. Do check out Four Corners because they've got some fantastic publications. So there you go. Um, yes, one-time member. Well, still is um, part of Ninja Tunes, I think. Anyway, who knows. But uh, this has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived, aren't you, lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.